Welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm Olivia DeBercier. And in case you missed it, we've launched our new merch store over on Etsy. We've got new stickers, acrylic keychains, and handmade sunfish ornaments. So if you want to support the show, check it out at etsy.com shop slash beyond blathers. Today, we are shaking things up and having a two-part episode because there is so much to unpack with the mammoth. Uh, It's a big animal, so it gets a big episode. And this is also our 50th episode, which is like, that blows my mind. I cannot believe we've done 50 of these and that we've been at it for a year. So massive shout out to everyone who's been out there listening to the show and supporting the show. We cannot express how wonderful it's been to have your support and it's been an absolute blast for us. So thanks so much. Yeah, this feels like such a huge milestone. So I don't know. I Yeah, I kind of can't believe that we made it to 50 episodes, but I think this is such a fun way to celebrate with this special two-part episode because as you may know, if you've been listening to the show recently, Olivia was recently in the Yukon and studying a lot about sort of Ice Age times. And and then I also have some random stuff to talk about with mammoths too, which we'll probably get into in part two. So yeah, I think I'm calling this the mammoth extravaganza. I think that's a, that's a good way of doing it. Also, it, I, it occurred to me that this is, I'm pretty sure, the only mammal we've ever covered, right? Because we haven't done... Yeah. This, so this is the first mammal, which is kind of fun. So, like, we've done some birds, but those aren't yeah. mammals. <laughs> no, <laughs> they're not mammals. Yeah, so I guess for this first part of the episode, well, first part of the two-parter... Uh, we're going to be covering mostly mammoth ecology. So talking about what life was like for them millions of years ago, or I guess thousands of years ago, more accurately. And the second part, we'll talk about de-extinction, a bit about mummies, how mammoths are found, and I'll share uh, some anecdotal stuff I learned from my time in the Yukon and how paleontology kind of happens up north. Yeah, so make sure to stick around for next week as well. But before we get into it, Here's what Blathers will tell you if you bring him a mammoth fossil. Ah, mammoths, the bad boys and girls of the ancient mammal world. So woolly, so unkempt. They are, of course, most famous for their size, which could be up to 13 tons for the largest males. But they were subject to no one's rules, and some species were smaller than modern elephants. Scientists have pondered for years, were mammoths the coolest of all extinct species? (laughs) Perhaps so. It's a really accurate reflection on scientists. Yeah. (laughs) The real question here about mammoths. Hypothesis. Mammoths were the coolest of all (laughs) extinct species. (laughs) Oh, I love it. And also, (laughs) I like the idea of, like, the bad boys of the ancient mammal world. Like, I gotta say, I'm not really thinking of uh, mammoths as bad boys. I think it's just, like, they seem so cuddly yeah (laughs) I guess I was like I think of the bad boys of the ancient mammal world may have been like saber-toothed cats or something I don't know Mm -hmm. I know I feel like I'm gonna make a lot of ice age references in this episode but like ice age posits that saber-tooths are the bad boys that's true maybe that's why I feel that way yeah 
And I I kind of think of mammoths like Highland cows, you know? I think just because they're so fluffy. Yeah, they look like yaks. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, let's get into it because, oh my gosh, we've got a lot to go through here. (laughs) So I'm like, I'm going to nerd out really hard. So bear with me. So yeah, as we mentioned before, last semester I was living in the Yukon, which is for those who might not know, it's like right next to Alaska. It's very far in northern Canada. And it's a place where the remains of many iconic Ice Age animals have been found. So right now, if you were to look at a map of the Pacific, you'll see Russia and Alaska up north. And between the two continents is what is called the Bering Sea. And if you think back to the glacial periods during the Pleistocene era, so the Pleistocene is 2.5 million years ago to about just under 12,000 years ago, glaciers were covering Canada as well as the northern U.S., leaving what is now Yukon and Alaska exposed. And at this time, Europe was also covered in glaciers, uh, and many mountain ranges like the Tibetan Plateau were also fully glaciated. So with all of this water in the glaciers, that meant the sea level was much, much lower. And this exposed a land bridge between Russia and Alaska in what is now the Bering Sea. And this is called Beringia. And the reason I'm telling you all this is because Beringia was a really important feature in the global landscape, and it was a big part of where mammoths sort of traveled through to North America and uh, a big part of their habitat. And it's also really important because it provided a connection point between the continents for species to migrate and diversify and evolve. And it is also our best bet to our current knowledge for how humans first came to what are now the Americas. And then the other thing I wanted to talk about is between the glaciers in Europe the Tibetan Plateau and the western edge of the Yukon was this massive ecosystem called the Mammoth Steppe. So this area was largely treeless. It was covered in grasses and forbs and was home to some amazing megafauna. So during glacial periods, you would find Beringian lions here, scimitar cats, steppe bison, short-faced bears, saiga antelope, horses, and wolves. <laughs> And during interglacial periods, when that land bridge would get flooded again, the area would be host to amazing creatures like giant beavers, ground sloths, camels, and mastodons. So over the years, many fossils have been uncovered from what was once Beringia, but unfortunately now most of Beringia is underwater. So um, that's kind of sad for us because, you know, there's got to be some really amazing fossils down there, but yeah, we're never going to be able to, well... I shouldn't say never, but it would be very, very difficult to find them uh, (laughs) under the ocean. Yeah, so I think Beringia is like amazingly cool. And I took a class on it last semester, which is why I'm like nerding out so much about it. Um, But I think it's also just very helpful to kind of understand what the environment looks like back then, especially because we have a better idea of what the environment looked like then than we did maybe when like dinosaurs were roaming around. Yeah, that's so cool. I remember, oh, is it at at the Royal Tyrell, do they have like they have like a whole part about Beringia? Am I wrong? Like, I don't know. I feel like there was like a whole part where there were like short faced bears and horses, like horse ancestors and stuff like that. They have a Pleistocene section, but it's been it's been a while since I've been to the Royal Tyrell, so I actually can't remember if it's specifically about Beringia. I know in Whitehorse, uh, which is the capital of Yukon, which is where I was living, they have a Beringia interpretive center. And it's like a wonderful little museum. I I really loved spending time there. They had this amazing 
wolf pup mummy from thousands of years ago, and it's like perfectly preserved. I mean, it looks really ugly and like smushed, but it's pretty amazing <laughs> that like <laughs> you have this this wolf pup that was like mummified for years. And uh, if you Google it, you'll you'll find like National Geographic articles and stuff on it. And I like went there. And no one was there. It was just like me and my boyfriend walking around. And I was like, oh, my God, it's the wolf pup. I'm so excited. <laughs> and yeah, no one was there. It was really wild. So if you're ever in Whitehorse, definitely check out uh, the Bringia Center. Yeah, I, I remember when I was in Whitehorse, I went and I remember being really blown away by it. Like, it's so, so cool. small, but it's it's very effective. Like, does the trick. Yeah. And all of the megafauna just, oh, I would love to see, like oh the the lions and the short-faced bears and stuff so cool you you mentioned mastodons are those different from mammoths yeah so mastodons broke away from the mammoth lineage 25 million years ago so like a really long time ago and just to give some like basic differences between the two they they look different for one while mammoths, they also ate more grasses. Mastodons were kind of more like moose. They would browse eating twigs and leaves. Uh, and they also lived in different regions. So mastodons occupied kind of the tropics and what is now the U.S. versus mammoths, which were also a bit in the U.S., but also into Eurasia and all those other spots. But I guess I should probably explain that in a bit more detail. Um, so, yeah, let's get into the taxonomy of mammoth. So the word mammoth actually refers to a genus of animals, mammothus. So mammothus belongs to an order called the proboscideans. And these are trunked animals that include the Asian and African elephants we have today. Other animals in the proboscideans group include things like the mastodons, which I just mentioned, and gomphotheries. So... <laughs> Gomphotheries is the weirdest looking animal. So do yourself a favor, pause this episode, go search it up. It's spelled G-O-M-P-H-O-T-H-E-R-E-S. So yeah, a really weird animal. It looks like, like an elephant, but if the elephant's jaw below the trunk was like elongated into almost like a duck's bill... Like, it's like it's got a trunk on the top and a duck's bill on the bottom. Super weird. Very excellent to search out. So. Yeah, they have like, oh, oh, it's very unnerving. It is. It's so weird. <laughs> like, they look completely normal except just their lower jaw. Like, yeah. what is going on there? Yeah, like, it just something weird happened. It looks like a mutation. Yeah, anyway, so that's the proboscideans. Very cool animals. And fun fact, the closest living relatives to the proboscideans are the Cyrenians, which are dugongs and manatees, and hyraxes. So while you have Google open, Google hyrax. It's a really adorable little animal. We At the zoo, we called them parkour potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> they are like, they kind of look like rodents. Um, they kind of look like groundhogs with like like little cute little noses and and. Just they like climb everywhere and they're like Spider-Man. I like I don't even know how to describe them. They're just really adorable. Anyway, so those are the closest living relatives to elephants today, which might surprise some people. And another cool like relation thing is that woolly mammoths are more closely related to Asian elephants than Asian elephants are related to African elephants, which I always thought was really cool because... I guess you would think that the two living species today would be most closely related to each other, but that's not the case. So 
Mm. Some more fun facts there. That is very interesting because I feel like Asian and African elephants look more similar than Asian elephants and mammoths. And that's the interesting thing is the more I looked into mammoths, the more I was sort of reminded like the woolly mammoth had a lot of hair, but the rest of the mammoths didn't. So the mammoths showed up around 5 million years ago and the last of them died off 4,000 years ago. And there's about 10 species within the mammothus genus. So it's not just the woolly mammoth there. The rest of them did look a lot more like elephants just at a glance. Wow. So I'll give a nutshell idea of how the mammoths spread across the world. And keep in mind that this topic is very rapidly growing because of new developments in the world of ancient DNA. And so honestly, like some of what I say may already be outdated um, just because like, scientific advancements are going so quickly and there's like new publications it seems like multiple times a year but yeah so the mammoth lineage began in Africa five million years ago with the South African mammoth and these mammoths eventually moved into Eurasia where they evolved into new species of Eurasian mammoths around 3.5 to 2.2 million years ago. Then around 2.2 million years ago one of these Eurasian species kind of floated over to eastern Asia and became the steppe mammoth. So remember, I was talking about that steppe environment, the grassland and, and Beringia. And the steppe mammoth was the largest of all the mammoths, and it was about 13 to 15 feet tall. Contrary to the woolly mammoth, which was only about 9 to 11 feet tall. And they were about the same size as like an Asian elephant. So they weren't actually that big relative to the other elephants we have today, which is still pretty big. And... The steppe mammoths spread to Siberia around 1.2 million years ago. And between then and 700,000 years ago, they eventually became the woolly mammoths. And so that's how we got the, these amazing furry creatures. And there's another species people may have heard about, and that is the Columbia mammoth. And that was a species that occupied the U.S. down to Costa Rica. And they're actually a hybrid of the woolly mammoth and a different species of mammoth that, like is sort of emerging right now because of that ancient DNA I talked about before. And that paper was just released in February. So it's kind of like brand new science. And they're like, oh, the Columbia mammoth was like a hybrid. How interesting. So yeah, that's what I mean by there's going to be lots of tangents here because there's like literally so much research out there. Um, it's a little bit overwhelming. So speaking of the Columbia mammoth, a group of these Columbian mammoths is known to have swam to California's Channel Islands, where they lived for thousands of years, eventually evolving into a kind of dwarf mammoth there. And these dwarf mammoths were only 5.6 feet tall at the shoulder and are a great example of island dwarfism, which occurs when animals come to an isolated place like an island. And dwarfism is basically an advantage because there's likely fewer predators there and they don't want to be consuming as much food because they're in a restricted area. So a lot of animals, once they come to an island, might eventually take on a smaller body form, which happened to mammoths, which is really crazy to me. And they lasted there a really long time. So yeah, I just thought those are some of like the really interesting species of mammoth that I wanted to point out. And I just like the idea of like really small elephants running around an island. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. I honestly... I feel so like ignorant for not knowing that there were a lot of different species of mammoths that they were in other places, but I feel like I always just think of woolly mammoths as just like a synonym for mammoth. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I did too. Like, I guess maybe I thought, like I knew there were other 
ancestors of elephants and other relatives of the elephant. But I always assumed they had other names that weren't mammoth, if that makes sense. Like, I'm sure I've seen pictures of step mammoths, but I didn't think they were a mammoth. I thought they were just like had their own genus or something. So, yeah, I think that's kind of a like a cool fact. Like if someone says mammoth, you can be like, oh, what kind? Because even the Columbia mammoths, they were often living really close to woolly mammoths. They've been found at the same sites as woolly mammoths, but they looked a lot more like your ordinary elephants. Like they didn't have that really dense fur. And yeah, they had the really big tusks. But but um, overall, it was kind of like having just regular elephants in the U.S. just naturally. That's so interesting, too, that they weren't all as big as I feel like we imagined them to be. Yeah, I mean, they were the size of, like I said before, today's elephants. They were about three meters tall at the shoulder, 9,000 to 11,000 pounds, which is really only a couple thousand pounds heavier than an Asian elephant. I don't know if that accounts for, like, fur, though, because I I feel like that fur has got to add, like, a ton of weight onto them. I also love only a couple thousand pounds Only a couple thousand pounds. (laughs) Well, that's the funny thing is, like, you know, at the zoo, we had an I have an elephant named Lucy, and, and Lucy would fluctuate in weight by quite a significant amount. Like, we're talking hundreds. I don't I don't actually remember if it was thousands, but I don't think that's an insane... I feel like at some point she was, like, varying to that degree in her weight. Just because they eat so much food. I mean, they eat about 200 pounds of food a day. Wow. It's the same amount that mammoths would have had to eat, too. So if you think you're <laughs> consuming 200 pounds of food a day, if not more... That weight is going to vary quite a bit. So for an elephant, a couple thousand pounds, it's not really that that big of a deal, I guess, in the grand right. scheme of things. And I don't know. I think it's so interesting that now we don't have any, you know, elephants that live in the north. How like how did it work for for mammoths that they were able to live in the in that far north? They were really well adapted for the cold. So if you think of the image of a woolly mammoth, they had really small ears. So African elephants have like iconically massive ears to help them cool off. But that's really not useful for an animal living in the far north. For them, they're going to want to have ears that are nice and compact, that are close to their body. Because large ears, um, those ears have a lot of blood vessels in them. And for an African elephant, they'll sort of they want them to be exposed because the air around it helps sort of wind will sort of draw heat from their ears and from their blood and help cool them down. So you kind of want the opposite for an animal living in a really cold ecosystem. Now, they also have really thick fur. So their long coat acted like a skirt almost, which protected them from wind and provided insulation from the snow if they lay down. So think of you just said it reminds you of like those cattle And it reminds me of a yak, and they all have very similar things with that long skirt-like fur. Yeah, keeping them warm. (laughs) And they also had a thick layer of fat under their skin. Uh, And so that was keeping them warm, as well as they had this sort of fat hump, much like camels today. And you can see that in illustrations, even cave drawings, where they have this hump between their shoulder blades behind their head. And that was for storing extra energy and it helped them survive the winters, which would have been really, really harsh. And you don't see this in modern elephants because their fat is stored throughout their body rather than just in like a single hump somewhere. They also had a nice short tail, similar with the ears. They don't want sort of long extremities hanging out in the open, waiting to get frostbitten. That's no good. And if we're looking at their trunk, that also had an adaptation to help them deal with the cold. It had this sort of 
hood-like extension at the near the tip. And that was likely used for scooping up snow to drink or to move out of the way. So it kind of looks like a thickened part of their trunk, kind of on the bottom half. It's really interesting. It looks like a, a little bit like a spoon. And so, yeah, that was another adaptation they had. And also, their babies grew faster than baby elephants today, which probably increased their likelihood of survival. That's a lot of adaptations. And I did not know that they had that they had a hump like a camel. That's really cool. Yeah, and I guess because they're so covered in... Like, it's probably not exactly the same as a camel, but it definitely looks like it if you look at an image of them because they're covered in fur to a point where I feel like I haven't really noticed it before. I've just sort of... Yeah, their their shape just is so iconic that I never questioned it. But I guess it makes sense. Like, you're living in a really food-poor area. Probably helpful to have some fat stored up. And apparently even the young ones have that. So that's pretty cool, I think. Another iconic adaptation that we have to talk about is their massive tusks. I mean, these tusks could reach up to 3.5 meters long, which is 11 and a half feet long. And they could weigh up to 220 pounds. Like, that is so... I just can't imagine having that on my head. Like, like a 220-pound mustache. Yeah. That's too much. And Sophia, I don't know if you already see in my notes, but do you want to guess what some of the purposes of the tusks were? I mean, I guess I always assumed that they were, like, maybe there was some, like, intraspecies competition or something, and they were fighting each other with their (laughs) tusks, but... I feel like that's probably wrong. No, they definitely were doing that. But one fact I learned about them is that they were also using their tusks to likely sweep away snow to get to the grass in the winter. So similar to the way caribou use their antlers, they have sort of a scoop at the front and they'll use that to push snow away. And I thought that was Um. kind of cool because it makes sense. They're like dragging near the ground. And female mammoths also had tusks. They were just a bit smaller and thinner. And the other really cool thing about tusks is that if you were to see like a tusk today in a museum and it's been cut in half, that tusk will look a lot like a tree trunk in the sense that it actually has growth rings on it. So those rings can tell us how fast the mammoth was growing, maybe what kind of food was available to it, where it was, what the climate was like. We can get a lot of information from that uh, using a whole bunch of fancy technology. (laughs) But yeah, it can tell us a huge amount about what was going on in that mammoth's life and also at the time or finding out at what point in its life it died because we can kind of tell by looking at those rings whether it was spring or winter based on yeah the shape of them but also the chemistry so yeah just like it's insane how much science can be done on these animals right that that's interesting too because modern elephants have tusks too but they wouldn't be using it for pushing like snow aside yeah i mean Tusks can be used in a lot of different ways. They can be used to, like, push trees over. They can, like, yeah, be used as defense um, against predators, but also against other members of their species. There's a lot of purposes for them. Um, And elephants can be very creative with how they use their tusks. Sometimes (laughs) they use it as, like, an armrest for their trunk. They'll just sort of, like, hang it on their trunk and just be like, I don't feel like carrying that anymore. Um, And apparently mammoths did that, too. Uh, I don't know how they found that out, but I would assume it's possible that they found one doing that in its death or, yeah, I'm not sure how they they figured that one out, but. (laughs) That's so cool. And so in terms of their diet, then they were mostly eating like 
grass under the snow? Yeah, the mammoth steppe was a grassland-type ecosystem, so mammoths largely ate grasses and forbs. And like elephants, they had to eat a huge amount of food to meet their energy requirements. So as I said before, they were eating about 200 pounds of food per day. Which brings me to one of my favorite topics relating to elephants and proboscideans, which is their teeth. I'm like kind of obsessed with elephant teeth and... I'm sorry I've been talking so fast during this whole episode. I'm just, like, so excited (laughs) about all of this. Yeah, no need to put this episode on, like, 1.5. Yeah, (laughs) please don't do that for your own health. Um, So, yeah, to start about elephant teeth, I want to talk about Asian elephants, which, of course, are the closest living relatives to woolly mammoths. So if you look inside an Asian elephant's mouth, you're going to see what I call four tooth chunks. And I say tooth chunks because I've seen some papers that like, they say that there's more than four teeth and they're just fused. But I think that's confusing. They really just look like four big teeth that are about like the size of a Kleenex box, depending on the elephant's size. And so they'll have like two molars at the bottom, two molars at the top. So if you look at the top of the molar, it's really flat, but It has these long oval shaped ridges along the surface and that helps to grind up plants. They're nice and flat, but yeah, they'll just like really, yeah, just grind up those chewy, difficult to digest plants. And these ridges are essential in the identification of different proboscideans because different species of proboscidean will have different looking teeth ridges. So often museums will actually have them on display to show people because they're really easy to see. In the case of an African elephant's tooth, those ridges will have more of a triangular shape and mammoth teeth have straight lines or relatively straight lines, I would say. Now, with an animal that's eating 200 pounds of food per day, you can imagine that those four teeth are going to wear down pretty quickly. So what is a mammoth to do? It's got to replace those teeth. And like Asian elephants, woolly mammoths went through six sets of teeth in their life. So not two like we do, but... Six. And think back to when you were a kid and you lost a molar. And if you don't have memories of this, like, I understand. But I I remember being a kid and how weird it was to chew for a bit after I'd lost a molar. And so if you only have four teeth and you lost a whole tooth all at once, you'd have, like, a very hard time eating. So that was, like, not an option (laughs) for proboscideans. So the way they deal with it is that instead of losing a whole tooth all at once, their new teeth grow in from the back moving forward. And that basically slowly pushes the old tooth out. And the old tooth will have just sort of chunks or flakes break off of it over time until it's been fully pushed out by the new tooth. It's kind of like a escalator motion. And it's really fun because at the zoo, like because Lucy's been around since she was a baby, we've got a lot of her teeth chunks and they are, they honestly look like giant toenail clippings. I know it's probably oh. really gross to hear, <laughs> but like, that's honestly what they look like. Um, we also had her toenail clippings, which is probably why I felt like they looked like toenail clippings because they look the same. Weird wow. things you <laughs> do in a zoo. <laughs> Um, I could have gone my whole life without knowing that. Oh, but now aren't you happy that you know that? Isn't that going to make your life better? (laughs) I'm happy that I don't have six sets of teeth. That's just too much. It's, yeah, six six sets is, yeah, it's so many. Yeah, so anyway, but yeah, once they get through the six sets of teeth, unfortunately, 
Like, that's it. And it probably means the animal will starve to death if they wear those teeth down. So, you know, teeth are essential for these animals' survival. So, yeah, I just think that's a really fascinating aspect of proboscideans. We need to start making, like, elephant dentures to give elephants. (laughs) New charity idea. Elephant dentures. (laughs) And I got to share one more cool fun fact about mammoth teeth, Um, and that is that by studying teeth found from a baby mammoth in Old Crow, Yukon, they found that woolly mammoths probably nursed their mother's milk for the first three years of their life, which is so long compared to most mammals. And I went down like this rabbit hole and found out that Asian elephant babies are solely dependent on their mother's milk for the first three to six months of their lives, but the babies usually don't need it for survival after two years. However, their moms will still lactate for another two to eight years, which is like so long. <laughs> like, wow. Those babies are just like drinking milk for, yeah, eight years of their life, potentially. Oh, so like they'll keep drinking it for that long? As far as I could tell, I think it really like varied. And it also like depended on whether the mother had like another baby. But yeah, I just found that so interesting. It doesn't mean they're like dependent on it for all those years, but they'll need it for at least two years. Still a long time. And it's possible that mammoths had this sort of long lactation period to help their calves survive the long winters, or it may have also been to keep their young close to prevent predation. So we're not super sure about that. But isn't that cool that you can tell that from an animal's teeth? You're like, ah, yes, this animal was nursing for three years. That is really interesting. And I mean, you just mentioned predation. What was preying on them, like saber-toothed tigers and stuff? Yeah, for the most part, it was humans. (laughs) Oh, Um, right. (laughs) Yeah, most part it was humans, but young mammoths could have been attacked by, yeah, like saber-toothed tigers, scimitar cats, Beringian lions, all those big, big cats, wolves. But when it came to like an adult, it seems like it, it... They haven't really found any remains suggesting that an animal was, like, actually killed unless it was injured or really old. But, yeah, they they were pretty much, like, a they were pretty domineering over the environment. Like, they didn't have a whole lot of predators as a healthy adult. So, other than humans. And, I mean, I guess the big question is, like, why did they go extinct then? Yeah, this is the million-dollar question. So the Pleistocene megafauna extinction is not one of the five mass extinctions that we usually think of when we're talking about mass extinctions, but it is really interesting, uh, especially to scientists, scientists, because of its proximity to today and because it also was probably stimulated by a lot of climate change. Prior to 10,000 years ago, there were some really cool megafauna like all over the planet But then at the end of the Pleistocene, almost all of those large-bodied animals go extinct. And when we're talking about large-bodied animals, we're talking about like 100 pounds or bigger here. And this starts happening all around the world to different degrees. The largest percentage of large-bodied animals to go extinct before the Holocene is in North America, South America, and Australia. Definitely you saw many animals go extinct in Africa and Eurasia as well, but those were sort of... I guess the spots with the most animals to go extinct. So lots of lots of drama happening around then. And the weird thing too is that this extinction was largely terrestrial. So we weren't seeing the same effect in the oceans. So the question is, what's happening? And I think growing up in this age, both of us are probably thinking the same things. Uh, like humans probably did this. They must have come in and overhunted everything. And that's certainly like a very valid and like 
scientifically researched explanation for what happened. But currently, it doesn't seem like the evidence points really clearly to humans. Like, it probably had an effect on some species or in some places, or maybe if the animals were already stressed in an area, humans could have sort of done them in. But there's something else probably going on here. So after about 20,000 years ago, the whole globe starts to warm up, which might lead us to think, okay, so climate change, species extinction, that makes sense. But the megafauna have survived these glacial interglacial cycles across the whole planet before. So why is this one different? They've already dealt with intense climate change cycles. Like, so, so why would this warming event be any different? And one idea is that around 13,000 years ago, there was this really brief period of really intense cold, and this was called the Younger Dryas. And so what may have happened is that these animals were already stressed because the world was warming and, you know, they're having to figure out ways of surviving. But then it suddenly gets really, really cold again. And that change may have just sort of tipped the scale on habitats that were already undergoing environmental stress. So that's one idea. We don't know for sure. And for woolly mammoths specifically, there's genetic evidence that suggests that their populations were somewhat fragmented over time. And their remains were found in up to 40% of human archaeological sites in the mammoth's range, which definitely means they're being hunted. But the really weird thing about this is that there appears to have been a population boom in these woolly mammoths 10,000 years after they had contact with humans. So you would think that if humans had overhunted them, like, why didn't their extinction happen earlier? Why was there a population boom? even though they were probably being hunted by humans. So that doesn't seem to really line up properly. And so from the papers I read and the discussions we've had in class, it sounds like it was probably a combination of climate change and probably overhunting. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a real sort of mixed bag of, of problems for the woolly mammoth. Now, in the end, woolly mammoths, on the mainland at least, seem to have gone extinct around 12,000 years ago, but there was a population on small islands off the coast of northern Siberia that seemed to have survived until about 4,000 years ago, which is when the Great Pyramids were being built. So, you know, they were still around in our historical memory, at least our Western historical memory, and I, I think that's pretty cool. Wow, that's so interesting. I didn't know that it was that complicated, I guess, but of course that makes sense. I mean, it's very rarely just one thing, right? Like even if we think about, you know, the sixth extinction that we're going through now, it's a combination of climate change, overharvesting, like uh, resource depletion as we like take down all the forests and everything. I mean, like <laughs> there's so many factors. It's not just one thing. Yeah. And like there are definitely other ideas out there too. I, I didn't mention them because they're kind of like... I guess, less well-supported and more controversial. But, like, some people say, oh, it could have been disease. Like, a big disease that just, like, wiped out all the big megafauna. It could have been um, an asteroid impact. That one got a lot of media attention. Seems like kind of a questionable idea, though, and there's not really enough evidence to support that, including, like, they don't seem to have an idea of where the asteroid could have landed. So, yeah, yeah, it's, like, there's other ideas. It could have been a catastrophe. We don't know. It was probably a combination of a lot of things. I feel like that's a fair, fair assessment, <laughs> fair assumption to make. Probably, yeah, it wasn't just one impact. 
I don't know. Did you mention this before? So were mammoths and elephants alive at the same time and mammoths went extinct, but elephants continued? That is a really good question. I actually don't know. I'm going to I'm going to say I'm pretty sure pretty positive elephants were around 4000 years ago, but I have to check. Yeah, you would think so, right? Like when the pyramids were being built. Yeah, like that that checks out. Yeah, okay. So African elephants show up 1.5 million years ago. So like they they had been around for a long time prior to that. I always find it so interesting when like some species survive but some don't, you know? Mhm. And it's a really fascinating thing. Like I was reading a paper that was sort of trying to look at, okay, here's our fossil evidence of all the megafauna. Here's when climate change happened. Here's when human humans happened. Let's just look at this visually. Does it make sense that humans sort of caused this or does it not quite line up? And in most of the cases, it didn't seem to line up very well, except in North America. Like there seemed to be a closer relationship between when humans came and when the megafauna died out. But that's not to say that that wasn't because of climate change either. So it's it's really ambiguous and it's really interesting to me, too. Yeah, I guess, though, like, we've gone through so much in this episode. I feel like I was just, like, pelting people with facts. (laughs) (laughs) So to kind of summarize what on earth just happened. One, there are 10 mammoths that belong to the elephant group Proboscideans. And they have some very strange-looking ancestors as well as some very familiar ones. Two, woolly mammoths lived in the mammoth steppe environment, which was a dry and cold, grassy environment that stretched across Beringia into Siberia and through Eurasia. Three, mammoths have teeth much like today's elephants and would have really raked in the tooth fairy money as they went through six sets of teeth. And four, the extinction of mammoths remains a mystery, but it was likely due to a classic combo of climate change and human pressures. But they managed to hold out well until the Holocene despite this. Oh, such a classic combo. <laughs> wow. Really is the one-two punch. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know video game terms. <laughs> KO. <laughs> KO. Knockout. <laughs> uh. Wow. Well, that, I guess, wraps up part one of our mammoth extravaganza special. I know I learned a lot. I'm very excited to learn more, though. Oh, yeah. I'm so excited to get into the next episode because next episode is like some juicy stuff. It is some drama. I feel like we just scratched the surface. So, yeah, I'm ready. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, thanks so much, Olivia. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Make sure to tune in next week to learn more about the mammoth. Bye. Bye. Bye.